Welcome to Let's Talk Sales, the podcast that's all things sales and business development. This podcast series is for CEOs that are looking to build strong companies, sales VPs and sales managers that want to take things to the next level, and for salespeople that are looking to improve. This podcast is brought to you by the Criteria for Success Sales Growth Program. Are you looking to experience a breakthrough in your team's sales? Have you tried sales training in the past but were unable to make it stick? The Criteria for Success Sales Growth Program is a year-long engagement that combines sales and leadership training, a digital sales playbook, and a coaching and accountability process that will change your sales culture and drive sustained growth. Learn more at criteriaforsuccess.com. Today's podcast is part of our Sales Leaders Talk Sales series. Yes, as always, a lot of S's in there. And we're talking to experts about growth and what they've learned about sales and marketing. This is Rebecca Toomey, and today I'm talking to Tibor Shanto. Tibor has been a sales leader for over 25 years, helping companies achieve and improve their revenue goals. As a principal with Rembor Sales Solution, Tibor works with leading B2B sales organizations to improve critical aspects of their sales cycle, including shortening sales cycles, increasing close ratios, and creating double-digit growth. Tibor is also the author of Sales and Consequences, The Objection Handling Handbook, and Shift, Harness the Trigger Events that Turn Prospects into Customers, and lastly, execution, everything else is just talk. Tibor, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you. So just a quick note to our listeners. I'm a little under the weather. I uh, mentioned to Tibor that I've been experiencing a nice little stomach flu uh, through the night. And so uh, I apologize if I sound a little low energy. I'm working on it. I'm staying hydrated over here. So let's just get to it. <laughs> I'll, I'll hold it together for you. <laughs> we'll help um, you out. Also, we'll help you out. Oh, good, good. Thank you. <laughs> now, I'm really excited to learn more from you today about prospecting, execution especially, automation, and so much more. So I want to go ahead and just get started. Can you first share a little bit more about your career and how it's progressed? Sure. So I think like many salespeople, uh, it wasn't my first uh, choice, but at uh, some point in time, I found myself having to take a sales job. And it was actually when I needed to get the Canadian equivalent of your R7 license, I think, for the security salespeople. So in order to get that license, I had to join with a registered firm and what they were looking for were salespeople. So that was my first introduction to sales. Um, For the first couple of years, I thought this too will pass and I'll get a better career. But then as I got further into it and began to understand really what it is um, and the fact that there is some process and substance and science to it, um, it was around the same time that the success from a revenue or money standpoint, commission standpoint kicked in. And so I became and continue to be a student of sales. Awesome. (laughs) In terms of progression, I've done everything from selling... um, via the telephone, uh, selling currency door-to-door, 
to selling high value intangibles and almost everything in between. Some hmm. would say I've sold my soul, but you know. Oh, oh no. It's a different podcast oh, no. altogether. <laughs> oh no, I hope not. I hope you ha it hasn't gone that far yet. <laughs> no, I'm no, waiting for the right price. <laughs> As your career has grown and developed, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? I think the biggest lessons are the fundamental ones or the basic ones, which is it really is about the outcomes that the customer is, is, is trying to achieve. So, you know, there's two really old sayings in sales. One of them is absolutely true and one of them is absolutely false. The false one is that the customer is always right. And the reality is that the customers are generally busy doing what it is that they do for a business. So they don't always know exactly what's right for them, but they do have a clear idea of what it is that they're trying to achieve. So the other that is continues to be true is that we do have to continuously answer the question that any prospect is asking in their mind, and that is what's in it for me. And that sometimes could be very product-related. Uh, it could be very personal-related in terms of, is this going to advance my career? Or as one VP told me, the first thing he asks himself, is this going to get me fired? So, mm. so keeping the customer and their specific outcomes in mind, whether that's tangible vis-a-vis -vis the product or personal sensitivities and so on, I think if you focus on those, um, you're bound to succeed. Definitely. I think uh, I hear a little bit of kind of that phrase about enabling buying versus just selling. You know, so often we as salespeople just think about ourselves and our own agenda. And oftentimes we need that little reminder here and there to say, uh, it ain't about you. It's about your customer and what's best for them, what's going to make them look good. You know, you mentioned a VP that right. said, this is going to get me fired. You want to make sure that the other person is, is doing what's in their best interest. And obviously, it's all about them. Yeah, and I think the difficult thing sometimes is because the customer doesn't always know what's right or what have you, but they do have clear outcomes and they are thinking that they might get to those through one path and we might have an opinion that that path is wrong. That I think is where it becomes challenging for salespeople. Mm -hmm. um, which is why I recommend to them that they think of themselves first as subject matter experts and then they feel more comfortable with having a point counterpoint with someone because they're a subject matter expert as opposed to just a vendor of goods. Definitely. Now, what do you think it takes to be successful? Well, one is uh, persistence. I think in general, people tend to give up much too early. Um, you know, they give it a good effort, but that effort is not sustained long enough over time. We have to remember that most of the people that we're trying to connect with are already busy without us coming along. I think the other, which goes with the previous point that we discussed in terms of what the customer is trying to achieve, is I really think that we need to continuously sharpen our curiosity. Most salespeople try and get smart and then you know, they forget to be curious about what the customer is actually trying to do. So being a subject matter expert doesn't mean being a know-it-all or, or, or needing to be the one that's always talking. I think being a subject matter expert coupled with curiosity allows you to respond to clients in a very specific way based on what it is that they're trying to achieve. But being curious allows you to go further and deeper into trying to understand really what's behind their goals 
because maybe you can help them there as well. So I would say curiosity and persistence are the two sides of the coin that you need to succeed. Okay. Awesome. And how do you feel about the word sales? You know, what's your perception on sales as an industry? It's a noble profession. I've always wondered, and I feel like slapping salespeople who, who want to distance themselves from the word. You know, I don't see football players trying to distance themselves from the word sport or football. So if you're going to be a pro, you know, I used to work for this guy. I won't name the company, but... You know, he was one of these people that had difficulty with the word sales and, and things like that. So he changed all our business cards to accountant executives. So I asked him exactly how my role changed. And he said, it doesn't change at all. I just don't like the word sales. So he doesn't mind the outcome, which is revenue. He just doesn't like the word. And, you know, it's funny because if you go to, like, white-collar environments, whether it's, like, architects or accountants or engineers or stuff like that who do have a need to sell their services, they're, like, bothered by the word sales. So it's funny. I go into Word and I do a replace-all and wherever it's at sales or prospecting, I put business development. Other than that, okay. the content is the same, but they seem to be happy. So mm -hmm. I think I'm, I'm at the age where I no longer worry about labels. Mm. Yeah, there is a stigma around the word. It's interesting. We have clients that sometimes will come back to us and say, hmm, there's too much of the word sales in this curriculum. Can we change it to business development or account, you know, like you said, account executives or account management, different types of things. I know in the industry that I worked in for a long while, the construction and restoration industry, they just referred to sales as marketing, which made it really confusing for people later on down the road when my role was director of marketing and they're like, wait, what? You know, a little confusing because technically it was director of sales, but it's just every industry right. is a little bit different. And I find it funny that, you know, that used car salesman kind of uh, cliche is like overcoming this whole entire industry when it's really just one small fraction of what we do in our, in our industry, you know? But I think that speaks to the transient nature of the profession because the people aren't invested enough because many of them see it as an entry-level position or they see it as a transition role. Um, you know, they're really... I think it's changing not much for the better, but for the longest time, you know, you can get a sales job just by showing up. So, you know, I think now they've gotten wise to some of the pitfalls of that. So mm -hmm. when you get people who aren't really committed to the profession, you know, those things are bound to happen. But you know Definitely. that thing you said about the person telling you that there's too many too many too many occurrences of the word sale reminds <laughs> me of, you know, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Amadeus where the king tells Mozart that there's too many notes, you know. Mm -mm, so no, I, I haven't. <laughs> Yeah, so that sounds like a similar, you know, sounds like somebody who doesn't understand things, who feels a yeah. need to comment. Yeah, it's just that I think everyone kind of has their own, you know, way of presenting it. And if it really honestly offends somebody or makes people feel, you know, oh, this is not what we do, it's much more than that, then of course we want to be respectful of the way that they present themselves to the world. Um, but I, it, in the end, I think the point is that it's just, it's all the same. You know, whether we use the word sales or business development or account executives, it's, it's all sales. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
and you know again so as a somebody who recoils at the word you know i think there's more to it than just their reaction to the word perhaps they should be seeking a different profession <laughs> all right now next month we are talking about storytelling and how it can really transform conversation. So I'd love to jump to this topic for a couple of minutes. Do you believe that storytelling is an important part of effective selling? Absolutely, for a host of reasons. Um, you know, if you look at it just on a um, primal level and, you know, without getting overly scientific and trying to remember the book that I got this from, it had to do like six neuromarketing things or what have you. So. Storytelling is one of those things that has a positive impact on, on the listener for a number of reasons. Stories are very visual, so they're easy to get into. But also, if you think about, you know, who, where we first came to be introduced to stories, it's generally when we're kids, and it was always a pleasant experience, whether it was a bedtime story or at school or whatever. And if you look at the people who would tell us stories, um, it would generally be people that we trusted, whether it was a relative or somebody at school. So telling a story gets people in that mode of taking in the information in a very light and, you know, non, it's not a, there's no tension as it were, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, stories are very visual. So, you know, um, especially if it's it, it face-to-face, so whether they're selling using Zoom or face-to-face -face or whatever, you know, you can accentuate stories with, with the visual element. And that's why the, 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 the nonverbal communication is very important um, in sales. And I think, again, telling a story the right way, and, and there's a host of stuff out there about using stories in sales, um, could really steer the direction of the conversation. I mean, it's not going to get you a faster sale or a bigger sale every time, but it'll capture the imagination of the person you're speaking to, and when that happens, they'll ask the kind of questions that you could use to then evolve the sale. So I think it's important, but I think the one thing that people need to understand is sort of the nature of the stories and how to structure one, because really it's only the beginning and the end that count. People tend to tune out in the middle. So mm -hmm. a lot of people tend to pack all the important stuff in the middle, hoping that that's where the substance is. But there is an art to telling stories. And I think Michael Bosworth of Solution Selling Fame has just recently put out a book on storytelling. I know a couple of years ago when I spoke to him, he was heavily focused on uh, storytelling, especially as a means of helping younger people and, you know, whether they're millennials or other type of young people, you know, be able to actually engage with somebody that maybe is a bit more senior in years. So I think it plays a crucial role, but it's got to be done right, like most things in sales. Absolutely. Now, you started to give a, a couple tips, but what can our listeners do to become better storytellers? Well, First of all, think of what you want that customer to retain. And again, a lot of salespeople go in and hope that they could read their brochure and the customer will retain it. So, you know, so it goes back to a lot of prep work, like what's the reaction you're trying to get in that meeting? So again, a lot of salespeople I work with don't break down to sale to like, how far do I need to go in this meeting? So if I'm going to drive from Toronto to LA, I have to plan out how far am I going to get the first day? Where am I going to stay? What do I need for the second day, third day, fourth day, depending how fast I drive? So a sale is like that as well, unless you happen to be one of those rare people who works in a one-call environment. But most salespeople I work with have three, four, five 
or 20 calls to make on a particular person to finish the deal. So if you're going to tell a story, most people use it as an opportunity to tell the story of their company, their wives, and things like that. The customer's justifiably not interested in that, but they might be interested in the three or four key highlights. And I think what you need to do is make sure that that's what comes through in the story and that while you do need to embellish the vision a little bit, you know, making it long doesn't make it better. Making it detailed doesn't make it better. Highlighting the points at the beginning and the end and reinforcing them will allow that person to retain the key points you want them to retain. Mm-hmm. So it's not just tell a story, but you have to be very intentional about the type of story and the way that you're telling your stories. You know, I'm sure we've seen versions of the same, you know, play done entirely differently by two different crews. One made it great and the other made you want to go home at halftime. So it comes (laughs) down to how you do it, you know? Mm -hmm. That is so true. And now for our listeners, I wanted to throw something in here. We actually have a really great webinar. Um, It's on demand. And it was done by Jerome DeRoy. He's the CEO of Narrative, which is a storytelling organization. And he shared some of the principles of listening and storytelling and some different methods on how you can use storytelling. So if you are interested in learning more about this topic and storytelling, jump to the show notes for today's show. You can find that at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod one three nine. And you can watch that on-demand webinar and get some more ideas about storytelling. Now, Tibor, I know that much of your business is focused around helping your clients to prospect smarter and add value to buyers. Can you share more about your thoughts on prospecting in today's economy? It's not being done enough. Um, (laughs) Okay. Elaborate. So you think that people are not prospecting enough? (laughs) No, I find, well... Again, and it's difficult Which to make I a uniform statement. <laughs> yeah, so it's difficult to make a uniform statement. But mm-hmm. again, and, and there is a bit of a you know, self-fulfilling prophecy because I tend to work with companies who already understand that they have a challenge prospecting, but I also know that there's others. So I think that you know, one of my arguments when I, when I present my proactive prospecting program is that most sales organizations, large and small, have what you would call a sales process. So they can tell you exactly what you have to do at every stage of the sale from the time that you engage with the customer until they become a customer, so until you close the deal. So in each stage, and if we simplify it, that there's the opening qualifying, there's the discovery stage, there's the commitment stage, and then finally the delivery, if we make it simple as that, um, in each of those stages, you want to be able to understand where you can help the client move along. So I think that, I guess from my perspective, a lot of people believe that the product will sell itself and they don't bother breaking it down into stages. Just like we talked about when it came to the section around the stories, you really do want to know what what you want out of every element or every step of, uh, of the sale that you do. So mm-hmm. I think that with that process in place, it exists for everything that happens from that initial contact onto the time of the close. Most organizations don't have at all any sort of process or workflow 
for how do you get that lead. Now, some will tell you they do because they have a marketing automation and, you know, it goes through various processes, all well and good. But at one point, unless it's really a low ticket self-serve type of item, but if it's any sort of value prop, $10,000 or more or whatever, you're going to have to engage with that customer. And what they don't have a process for is that first conversation. What do I say? How do I say it? How do I anticipate the different things that are going to come at me? How do I present my initial sentence in a way that gets the objections that I can actually deal with? So I think what's missing for most organizations is a process that is focused strictly on prospecting. When there's no process, the measurements break down. So the only thing you can measure is did you convert or not. But if there were a process, you can actually measure the stages along and see where you need to make improvements. Um, So if you're not measuring it, then you really don't know how you're going to get any better. So I think that one of the reasons, for instance, salespeople don't like the prospect is because they have no point of reference. So there's stats out there that will show you that the average close ratio for a B2B salesperson from sales accepted lead to close is really only about two percentage points different than the average salesperson has making cold calls. Yet, I've never seen a salesperson freak out and say, I don't want to go on this lead for fear of rejection. But every day, there's people who say, I don't want to pick up the phone for fear of rejection, even though the results are not that different. And to me, the difference is the vacuum of reference points. So if you don't, you know, if you're walking around in the dark, everything is scary. But if you had a bit of guidance, a bit of light, then you can begin to deal with it and become better at it. So I think to me, the biggest is that salespeople are left on their own to figure out how to prospect uh, with the assumption that once they prospect this person, we've given them everything they need to close them. And that's why you get these silly statements by salespeople. You know, they'll say, oh, put me in front of the right person and I can close them. But the problem is the guys who make the big money are the ones who can get in front of the right person on their own. (laughs) That's true. That's so true. Do you have any tips for our listeners on prospecting? I have a full work day's workshop of tips. Perfect. There you go. (laughs) A full day workshop. Yeah, but I mean, what specifically do you think would be of interest uh, to your clients? I can tell you the biggest thing, you know, that most freak out over is voicemail, but go ahead. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that I run into the most, our audience kind of tunes into this and we hear this a lot is that people don't pick up the phone, that they'll call, you know, they'll call people however many times and they can't get them on the phone. What do you usually say to someone who says that to you? Leave them a voicemail. Now, the same people will tell you they don't leave them a voicemail. And when I ask them why they don't leave a voicemail, is they say, well, you know, I want to be able to talk to him. Well, if you want to be able to talk to him and you don't leave a voicemail, you pretty well have to hope that he's Kreskin or some other clairvoyant if he's going to call (laughs) you back. So failing that, you're going to build calluses on your finger dialing this guy over and over and over again because I don't pick up my phone and I sell telephone prospecting. So, you know, so if you don't use voicemail any longer, because how would they call you back? Are you going to hope and pray? You know, it doesn't work, right? So voicemail is key. Now, it's not the panacea, but it's part of the solution. So again, most salespeople get stuck in one track and they'll go either email, they'll go either just LinkedIn or some will go strictly phone and all three are wrong. But if you combine those three, 
then you'll find that you have a couple of things. You might actually identify what mode of communication works best for a given prospect. And if you leave them a voicemail and you do the nature of things that I talk about, you're able to build a narrative that builds in your emails and builds in your voicemails and so on. So as they put these things together, there's actually a picture forming as to why they want might want to call you back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that salespeople need to leave vo- more voicemails. They need to understand what they want out of their voicemail. And they need to be a lot more persistent than most are comfortable to do because stats are showing that what was true last year that it might take 18 touch points to get to a person. That's a combination of email, telephone, uh, LinkedIn, what have you. It's not taking much more than that and over a longer period of time. So if you're not leaving voicemails, you're tying one hand behind your back. Mm-hmm. You know. So now I understand why people are afraid to leave voicemail. I would say that the problem is the reason they don't get a call back is they're leaving the wrong voicemail. Mm, that was so going to be my next question. People. Was do you have a, a secret voicemail method? No, it's not so secret, but it's one that I learned years ago. And if they go to my website, which is really easy because it's my name dot com, so tiborshanto dot com, and if they go to the proactive prospecting page, just underneath the video, there is an opportunity to enroll in a free voicemail program, and it'll walk them through. Uh, cool. The cool. I'll throw, a link in, I'll throw a link in the show notes for you. There you go. Awesome. But I think, you know, but again, not to leave people hanging, I think the thing with voicemail is really to be counterintuitive. You know, people tend to leave too much information on voicemail. Um, the nature of most people's messages um, will turn the customer off. Um, so, you know, it's the, the hardest part is to give up the old habits. But I, I will give you your, I will give an immediate tip. It's, you know, when they leave their phone number, an interesting thing is most salespeople, because they want to be polite, but again, salespeople have this challenge of not being polite, but being polite enough to get the sale, but we also have to be counterintuitive. So most mm-hmm. people, because they want to be polite, will say something to the effect of, please call me back at your earliest convenience, right? Mm-hmm. But nothing smells more like a salesperson than that set of words in a voicemail. So no matter how good you've put everything into it, as soon as you say, you know, Please call me back at your earliest convenience. You basically stamped your forehead with the word sales, and it's going to be difficult to get that that message back. So you really have to think again about who you're calling, why, and what would make them want to call you back. And I can mm-hmm. guarantee you that it's not your product. Hmm. Yes, definitely. Well, they don't know who you are yet or your product or care. So it's got to be right. much more about them than anything. You know, it's about creating a bit of a mystery, right? It's, you know, you'll find my voicemail technique to be, as somebody described it, and I'll wear the label as being very cryptic because the human mind hates a mystery. So if we can create (laughs) the right mystery, they will go to solve it. So that's where my technique is about. Interesting. How can I get a call back? And that's nothing to do with, with product is that it's just human nature. How can I make that person curious enough to pick up the phone and call me? Mm-hmm. And I will tease people one step further. I get about 40% of my voicemails returned in about 72 hours. Wow. Wow. So you're tracking too. That's awesome. Well, you know, if it's not measured, it doesn't count, right? <laughs> That's right. But so many people don't track those types of things. 
So that's a good encouragement for for our audience here. Track everything. Yeah, unless you're afraid of what it might show. Yeah, I guess that's true. Now, execution is something that you are, I mentioned in the introduction that you're an author, and you've authored a number of books, and I believe your most recent book is titled Execution, Everything Else is Just Talk. And you've been very focused actually. It's on not. Execution. It's just one that I've. It's just one that I put it front and center um, at this ah. point. But oh, uh, what's your most recent I, book then? I'm trying to remember if it was sales or consequences. Sales and consequences, or no, it was the objection handling handbook. I think is the most recent. Ah, okay. And I have this. What I would what I would call is. I used to do uh, a monthly column for the Globe and Mail, which is Canada's sort of business newspaper. And mm-hmm. so I used to do a monthly column on sales for them, of all things. And I put together a collection of those. But I sort of, that's not really a book about selling, but it's just a collection of articles. Oh, okay. Opportunity okay. for shameless promotion. <laughs> I see. Well, what inspired But I would say the Objection for? Handling Handbook is probably the newest. I'm sorry? Oh, okay. Oh, I was just asking what inspired you to become an author then? Um, two things. It's a really great form of promotion. Um, you know, I tend to have a lot of opinions. I tend to have a big mouth and I have little regard for grammar. So it makes it easy for me to write. And I found early on when I got started in this business that, um, I'm a history major. So I had to write a lot of essays to begin with. So writing is not really a chore in that respect. Um, but somebody turned me on to writing newsletters, I think back around 2005. And in the processes I was researching that I got turned on to blogs. So I got into the whole blogging thing early. And again, as I say, I think a lot of people rightly so put an emphasis on grammar, English being my third language. I figured why bother? So I just started writing and I have I think I'm lucky, like most sales trainers, I deal with salespeople every day. I see their challenges. I see what they're doing well. I see things that they're thinking about. So it's relatively easy to begin to write. And then, you know, like everything else, you sort of graduate upwards, right? You go from writing mm-hmm. a blog post to writing, you know, a longer article to a series of articles for a professional newspaper to eBooks, you know. Mm-hmm. I suppose yeah, it's like yeah. drugs. You're always going to the next grade of nastiness. <laughs> Well, I've never heard of it referred to that way, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Do you have any plans for it? You will have had to try it both. <laughs> I always, I always have to, I always have plans for a future. But it's funny. I was meeting. I had lunch with a, a counterpart here. He works primarily with managers, and he he's just put out a great book, and he's had a lot of success. But um, we were talking about it because you know the hard part in books is getting them out, not getting them written. Not putting down the difficulty in writing, but as I say, there's editors, there's that. So as long as you have good ideas, you can get away with that part of it. it. Yeah. Yeah. But promoting it involves time and effort and so on. So I'll answer the question that I have plans, but don't ask me for a timeline. Okay. Sort of my compromise. Perfect. Well, that's fair enough. And speaking of books. I mean, I have a manuscript that just needs to be cleaned up and such. So. Ah, so you have something in the works. Yeah, in theory. <laughs> you were going to ask. Yeah, since we were talking about books, I'm sorry, we're on a little bit of a delay, I think. Um, since we're talking books, what is your favorite 
business book, sales book, growth book, all of the above. My favorite sales book is the 10-Day MBA. Mm-hmm. And I know it's not a sales book, but I always find it interesting that, you know, one of the questions I get asked often is how do I interact with executives and so forth and so on. And, you know, there's no sales book that's going to teach you to think like an executive. So to me, if you invest and in, read the 10-day MBA, it will at least give you an overview and roadmap as to what type of process and type of thinking and, and how that person at the other side of the conversation is evaluating things. So if you can understand, I guess it's like the art of war, you know, if you can understand their battlefield and so forth and so on, then you're going to be much better at communicating with them. The way that you're going to express things is going to be more in the mode that they're accustomed to. So therefore you're going to be easier for them to deal with. Right. And it's going to be easier for them to buy into the fact that you're a subject matter expert. So I know it's not a sales book, but uh, that's okay. People ask. Nice. That's the one I go with. Nice. Any other books that you really love? Other than mine? <laughs> yeah, other than yours. <laughs> you know, I'm a big fan of Reacher's books. You know, Lee, Lee Childs and the whole Reacher series. But I don't know if it helps me with sales, other than distracting me. Um, <laughs> I'm a fan of the challenger customer, and, I, and that's not to say that I'm not a fan of the challenger sale, but I think the challenger customer is a much better book. It's a much more practical book, and despite the title, it's a really great handbook for salespeople. I go back to it and look at it regularly, um, so I do like that if we're looking for sort of mainstream stuff. Awesome. That's um, actually there's a whole bunch of. I didn't even know he had written one called The Challenger Customer. I only knew about the Challenger sale. So now you've just given me something to research here. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. So they came out with that, I think. I think the first one was 2010. I think The Challenger Customer came out in 15. Okay. Um, cool. And, you know, and then there's a bunch of others that I like bits and pieces of. I mean, there's some classics you have to read, right? So, you know, I think everybody should read Selling to Vito. I think, you know, everybody should read Shiftman's Getting to Closed, you know. Um, if you're into management, I still think that Skip Miller's, you know, uh, proactive sales management is a must. So, I mean, there's stuff that's motherhood and apple pie if you're going to be in the profession. Mm-hmm. But I think there's still the challenge that 9 out of 10 salespeople don't read a book in a given year. So, it doesn't matter what I list here, does it? Yeah, they got to read them. People got to get out there and read most of them just read the list and pretend they read the books. <laughs> hey, well, I think that's why they came out with Blinkist, right? Have you heard about that app where you can listen to a book in no. like three or four minutes or something? Well, I think it's I'll put the... Tolstoy in there, War and Peace or something. <laughs> there you go. See how that goes in a, in a quick summary format. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you this last question. At CFS, we talk sure. a lot about sales playbooks. We are always looking for useful tips that managers, CEOs, salespeople can share in their playbooks. Do you have an actionable tip that our listeners might consider adding to their playbook? Yeah, so I'm I'm big. Like you'll find me talking and writing a lot about reviewing every opportunity that went into your pipeline. Um, You know, whether and I think there's going to be basically three type of opportunities: ones you win, the ones you lose, and then the ones that make no decision. And I think that it's important that these are reviewed regularly, um, almost every deal that you do, because 
You want to know why you're winning so you can accentuate those things. But you want to know why you're losing for two reasons. One is you might be able to make a small change and, and, and put them into the win column. Or you might come to discover that you're chasing the wrong type of clients, which is an opportunity to review where you are. So all this means that I think part of the playbook, I use a tool called uh, the 360-degree deal view, and it's quite thorough in terms of why you won and why you lost. And initially, it was designed to do that, but what we found with a lot of my customers is that it's also turning out to be a good way for them to think about how they're going to approach different customers because now they have a very specific snapshot of what happened in different deals. They see who the players are and what were some of the drivers, what were some of the obstacles. So if that now approach a lookalike, they know where the landmines are, they know what the openings are and so on. So I think that a thorough deal review, an opportunity review, not deal review because then people will only review the ones they win. But if they got into the habit of reviewing all the opportunities that go into their pipeline, they'll find that they win a lot more and their playbook will continue to evolve based on market conditions as opposed to their opinions. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And That's if they want to download that, I can give you a link that you can oh, include yeah. in the notes and they can download it. Perfect. Email me that link and I will add it to the show notes. Great. And then they can call awesome. me to find out how it works. There you go. That's perfect. Tibor, is there anything else that you want to throw out there before we wrap up today? Not really. I mean, I think, you know, the, the key thing that salespeople need to remember at the end of the day is that, you know, if you're doing it right, it should be fun. So if you're not having fun, then instead of being miserable, figure out how you can make it fun. Because done right, sales is fun and certainly profitable, I'll tell you that. There you go. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in to today's show. Again, you can find the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 139. And be sure to tune in on Friday for an inspirational quote from Ariana. And tune in on Monday for an interview episode about this month's ebook package on hiring. Our goal is to help you and add value, so please be sure to pass your feedback along to us at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. And all month, we're going to be writing about hiring on the CFS blog, so check that out at criteriaforsuccess.com slash blog. And next month will be all about storytelling, so tune back in for that. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by myself here, Rebecca Toomey, Ariana Miskell, and Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling, everyone.